turn together to Matthew, excuse me, to John's Gospel, uh, chapter 7. John's Gospel, chapter 7, our, our text begins in verse 25 and, and runs to verse 52. And uh, as you're turning, uh, one of the things you'll notice as we read through this passage is all the questions that are here. The many questions, uh, and perhaps uh, some of them are good and honest questions, but, uh, but there's other questions here that, that demand answers. And, and perhaps uh, the Pharisees and the Jews, the chief priests and the scribes, think that somehow uh, in asking these questions that they're somehow going to defeat faith in Jesus. Uh, but what this passage is going to teach us, I think, is that when we come with our questions, not only does Jesus provide us answers, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer to the deepest questions of our hearts. And, and he is that answer for our hearts because the Holy Spirit comes and uses his words and makes them wonderful words of life. But in order to hear the word of God this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come this morning asking that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Indeed, Father, we pray that through the Son you would send the Spirit. And Spirit, that you would come and lead us through the Son to the Father so that we might hear the very Word of God this morning and might be persuaded and enabled to embrace Jesus as he has offered to us in the Gospel. Lord, may we hear good news and good words of life this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me. And you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet 
the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of our family members, uh, when he was little, three, four, five, six, the way he accessed truth about the world was by asking a ton of questions. Uh, He asked all sorts of questions like, where does the sun come from and the moon and the stars and and why do they seem to move in the sky to why in the world is our truck gold and not black to dad, who's the best baseball team in all the world and of course that that question is pretty easy that's the st louis cardinals right uh lots of questions it was actually kind of refreshing to get all of these questions because none of my other kids actually asked questions all of his questions really were, were good questions honest questions and as a parent it's a lot of fun to get those kinds of questions of course, it's, it's the same way when you go to lunch with someone who you, who you find particularly interesting and, and you can ask them some really good questions or they ask you some really helpful, honest questions and you can have a really good dialogue. Uh, the, the questions meet answers, which, which get stories. And before you know it, you've been at lunch an hour, an hour and a half, two hours uh, because of the good, honest questions that are asked. Of course, there's sometimes in there when, when people ask questions, but they're not honest questions. No, they're not good questions. Uh, they're really questions to try to put you off, to try to somehow uh, push you away, to keep you at a distance, perhaps a, a rhetorical question or a sarcastic question or, or a question that's even meant to defeat belief in some way or another. And Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, uh, lists out at the beginning in part one, seven defeater beliefs that really serve as as kinds of questions that people will ask. And and they're not necessarily really interested in the answers. They, They think that the questions actually defeat belief in Jesus Christ. As I mentioned at the get-go, one of the the unique features of this section in chapter 7 of John's Gospel is all of the questions. And and truth be told, uh, while there's a number of questions, perhaps some of them are are asked in a good and honest fashion, uh, there are other questions here that actually are, are not good questions. They're actually meant to defeat belief in Jesus, to drive people away from from faith in him 
Um, perhaps you're here this morning and you have all sorts of questions. And perhaps some of your questions are good, honest questions. Uh, others of them, not so much. Uh, but, but what we have to see is that when we come with our good and honest questions to Jesus, that Jesus not only gives us answers to our questions, he is the answer to our question. Because Jesus is the prophet, as we've already affirmed this morning in our statement of faith. Jesus is the prophet who speaks God's word and will. But he's also the God who speaks his word and will perfectly. And as a result, he's, he's the answer to our questions, able to, to assuage our fears and to settle our doubts and to renew our hope. Because ultimately, our hope is anchored in him. Uh, this passage, as I've mentioned, is filled with questions and doubts. I mean, if you just simply notice, let your eyes scan over the passage while I bring you back to it again. Notice uh, verse 25, there's a question. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Uh, again, verse 26, um, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Uh, verse 31 when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Uh, again, verse 35, uh, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Again, verse 35, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, and teach the Greeks? Verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? Verse 41, um, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Verse 42, has not the scripture said that, that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the, the village where David was? Uh, verse 46, uh, why did you not bring him in? Verse 47, have you not also been deceived? Verse 48, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Verse 52, are you from Galilee too? There are so many questions. In fact, it feels as though this passage asks more questions than provides answers. If we were going to try to boil all of these questions down to their fundamental doubts or their, their fundamental attempts to defeat faith in Jesus or to even to raise perhaps good, honest questions, perhaps, perhaps we could sum up these questions in in three particular questions. And the first is, where is he from? I mean, that's the question that comes up, it seems, repeatedly in this passage. Where is Jesus from? Well, on the one hand, the crowd declares quite confidently that they already know where Jesus is from, right? Verse 27, they say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. As the passage unfolds, they'll identify Galilee as the place from which Jesus comes. And the Pharisees especially will, will rule out that place as a place from which the Messiah comes, or even the prophet himself can come. And doing that, verse 52, they say that, they say, uh, Search and see that, that no prophet arises from Galilee. Of course, in saying that, they, they conveniently overlook the Old Testament prophet Jonah, who 2 Kings 14 verse 25 tells you comes from a town that actually would sit in the present day New Testament day district of Galilee. 
But, but the reason why this is also problematic is, is that, as the, the Pharisees will say, the, or the crowds will say, that, that the Messiah is to be David's offspring, is to, in fact, come from Bethlehem of Judea. And we recognize that, don't we? That comes from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a passage that comes up almost every Advent season. And, and John's expecting his readers of his gospel to be aware of the other gospel accounts. He doesn't talk about um, the birth of Jesus at all, doesn't give a genealogy. He's, he's expecting that his readers at around AD 100 are, are already quite aware of Matthew and Luke quite aware of the genealogies that show that Jesus stands in the line of David, very aware of the birth narratives that place Jesus as having been born in Bethlehem. John's assuming that we are aware of it, but, but for his purposes, it's, it's notable that Jesus doesn't answer all this from, well, uh, you think you know where I'm from? You think I'm from Galilee? Well, you're wrong, suckers. I'm from Bethlehem in Judea. Ha! Gotcha. Right? I mean, I'd be tempted to do that. I'd be tempted to throw the got you at the Pharisees. But, but Jesus doesn't do that. No, what does he do instead? Well, well, look at what he says. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I'm from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now, what Jesus is doing here is problematizing. I, I think I may have made up that word. He, he's, he's problematizing what they think they know. He says, yes, you know me. You should be seeing air quotes there. Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. But you don't know the Father. Because if you did, you would believe that he sent me, and then you would know really where I'm from. You see, this whole question about where Jesus is from is actually about identity. In the same way that when, when you meet someone new, you, you will ask them, well, where are you from? Well, I'm a Memphian. I'm a, I'm a Tennessean, or I'm a Mississippian, or I'm an American. or you know, And, and it, it conveys a particular identity. There's where you're from speaks to who you are. That, that's the idea here. Uh, questions about where Jesus is from really is about who he is. If, if he's from Galilee, if he's from Nazareth, well then he can't be the prophet, the Messiah, the promised one. But if he's from the Father, if he's from heaven, then his claims about who he is and what, what he's done are in fact true. But there's a second question, a second question that has doubt attached to it that's asked. Not just where is he from, but what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, that's the question that the Pharisees ask in response to Jesus' words in verses 33 and 34. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 33, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean? 
by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You see, Jesus is telling the the Pharisees that he's returning to the the Father, to the one who sent him. And, And again, John's readers would have known this is in fact true. They would have known with certainty that 40 days after Jesus was raised from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as as depicted in Acts chapter 1. They would know that you could search for Jesus' body, as people have done for 2,000 years, and you're not going to find it, because he returned to the Father and is seated in heaven. But the Pharisees, they're utterly confused by all of this, and so they, they ask the question, what does this mean? And the the answers they supply are are the most literalistic things possible. Is he going to go preach to the Greeks? Where is he going? Now, we've seen this before in John's gospel, haven't we? When when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, what did Nicodemus say? Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What does he mean? Or or when Jesus told the Jews that that he was the bread of life and that his flesh was bread indeed, what did they say? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What does he mean? So it's not surprising that when you come here and Jesus is speaking of returning to the Father, it's, it's not surprising that they couldn't understand what Jesus meant. But we should not be naive about what's going on here. Because their question, what does he mean? It's actually meant to defeat belief in Jesus. It's meant to raise doubts as though, well, no rational person can understand what in the world Jesus means. No rational person can understand and follow Jesus. But there's a third question that we can see here that has a measure of doubt attached to it. Where is he from? What does he mean? But finally, can this be the Christ? And, and really, that's the question that hangs over the entirety of this gospel. So it's not surprising that it shows up here. Uh, the crowd asks that very question in, in verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But, but it's a question that actually shows up at the, at the end of our section. Um, in, in verse 47, after uh, upbraiding the officers for not bringing Jesus in, um, They say, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee. Again, as readers of John's gospel, we know because of John chapter 3, that Nicodemus has been moving towards faith, uh, that he has come to, to, at least in some way, believe that Jesus has been sent from God. Likewise, if we were aware of the end of this gospel, we would know that Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, of the ruling council, one of the authorities, would identify with Jesus to such a degree that he would take Jesus from the cross, willingly defile himself, and bury Jesus in a tomb. And so there, we know there were rulers and authorities and even Pharisees who believed. But, but the question that still hangs out there is, can this be the Christ? And the Pharisees say, clearly, no. They're unwilling to know Jesus, unwilling to learn from him, unwilling to consider who he is and what he's doing. 
But that question still hangs out for us today. Can Jesus be the Messiah? Can Jesus be the Christ? It, it might be you're here this morning and you have good and honest questions that demand a good and honest answers. Can, can I say something to you this morning? I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad that you came this morning with your honest questions, good and honest questions concerning Jesus and Christianity. Perhaps you came with a little bit of trepidation because you thought that Christians didn't want to hear your questions, didn't want to patiently try to work through them. Maybe your perception of Christians is that we're all so cocksure because we've, we have all the answers. Uh, let me tell you quite clearly, uh, as, as a pastor, I don't have all the answers. There are questions that I wrestle with, even to this day, doubts that I try to figure out and, and ultimately set aside. There are a lot of questions that, that we struggle to find the answers to. And so if you're here this morning with, with good, honest questions, I'm so glad you're here. But what you have to see is that, is that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't require us to have all the right answers. He doesn't say, it, it, you can only enter into heaven if you, if you get 100 on the test. If you can answer all of the questions to, to the nth degree perfectly, then I'll let you into my heaven. That's not what Jesus says. That's not the gospel. What Jesus says is, bring your questions to me and ultimately find in me the answer to those questions. Because when, when Jesus becomes the answer to our questions, then we actually have real hope. And in fact, this passage this morning actually has answers that come from Jesus himself to the, to the profound questions and doubts that have been raised by the crowd and the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees. I mean, for those who had questions concerning where Jesus is from, the passage actually gives you the answer. He's from heaven. Jesus is from heaven. I mean, that's what Jesus means when he tells us where he's from and to where he's returning. You see it? Look at verse 29. Jesus says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And then verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. I mean, what can that mean? But that he came from heaven and is returning to heaven. That's where Jesus is from. He's from heaven. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because we've already heard in John's gospel that no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side or who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And so Jesus isn't simply from heaven. No, he's the only God who comes from God, from the right hand, the right side of God, from the bosom of God. He's come from God and is returning to God. And if Jesus is God, what does that mean? That means we can bring our questions and doubts to him. Because as God himself, the word became flesh, he's able to bear our doubts and carry our sorrows and be the answer to the deepest questions of our souls. So to the question about where Jesus is from, Jesus tells us he's from heaven because he's God himself. But to the question about what Jesus means uh, and why the Pharisees and so many of us don't understand what Jesus means, Jesus gives the answer, namely, his spirit. 
It's interesting that on the last day of the feast, which uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles, which, uh, with which this chapter begins, is an eight-day feast. So this is the eighth day, the, the day of the new beginning, the day of, of the new creation. Jesus stands up at the beginning of this new week, and he shouts, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, we've already heard words like this in John's gospel, remember? Where would that be? Well, that'd be back at, with the Samaritan woman at the well in, in John chapter 4. Jesus had said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I give, um, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so we've heard these words already in John chapter 4, but we hear similar words now. In this passage, in John chapter 7, Jesus actually reaches back to the Old Testament, to an Old Testament prophet named Zechariah. In Zechariah 14 verse 8, Zechariah prophesies that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, and ultimately those living waters will make God's world new. And so Jesus says, that time is now. I'm the one who actually gives the living waters. I'm the one on this new creation day, the eighth day of the week, who gives new life, eternal life. I'm the one who actually does this. But, but what is the living water? What's the living water that flows from Jerusalem? What's, what's the living water that brings eternal life? Well, John goes on to tell us that, that the living water is not a what. It's a who. It's the Holy Spirit himself. You see it? Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And the Holy Spirit, he is the answer to the question about what Jesus means. Why, why the Pharisees couldn't understand Jesus, and why our only hope for understanding who Jesus is and what he's come to do is actually connected to God the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul will say this later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, they're discerned by the Spirit. Friends, the only way to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do uh, happens when the Holy Spirit is given to us because he's the one who enlightens our minds. He's the one who renews our wills. He's the one who persuades us. He's the one who enables us to embrace Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel. He's the one who draws us to Jesus. He's the one who witnesses to him. God's own spirit whom Jesus gives us enables us to believe in Jesus and to understand what Jesus means. What does he mean? We only understand what Jesus means when, when God grants his Holy Spirit and allows us to understand Jesus' word. Because finally, Jesus' word is, is the final convincing answer to the question, can this be the Messiah? Is he the son of the living God? Now, I've not mentioned it yet, but th there's actually an arrest attempt here. Um, in verse 32, the scribes and Pharisees and the chief priests actually send officers to Jesus. 
Um, verse 30 says they're seeking to arrest them. They actually arrest Jesus. Verse 32, they actually send officers to arrest him. Um, there's an attempt to, to try to lay hands on him. Verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him. No one lays hands on him. And then these officers show back up and they don't have Jesus. And they're asked by the chief priests and the Pharisees in verse 45, why didn't you bring him in? Can you imagine police officers, uh, the, the best and the brightest of the blue that, that go to arrest Jesus? And there's a deep desire on behalf of the leadership to actually arrest him. But they come back and they're utterly empty handed. They look like Barney Fife. Like, how does that happen? Well, what's the answer that they give? Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, of course, in the sense that the officers meant, that's absolutely true. In terms of rhetorical style, in terms of depth of teaching, in terms of pathos, in terms of the ability to move the heart and to inform the head, no one ever spoke like Jesus. But, but for John's hearers, for you and me, that's more true than the officers themselves knew. No one speaks like Jesus because Jesus' word is life. Jesus' words are the words of life. They have spirit and life connected to them so that we are enabled to see and to believe that Jesus is the Messiah because we come to believe Jesus' wonderful words of life. That's what Peter says in the previous chapter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, Jesus' word settles our questions. Jesus' words calms our doubts. Jesus' words satiates our fears. Jesus' word leads us to see him, who he is, and what he's come to do. And that's because Jesus himself is, is God himself. The word became flesh. He's the one who gives the spirit. He is the glorified one. He's the one who brings about a, a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. He's the one who offers eternal life. He's the one who's from heaven and returning to heaven, who's seated at the right hand of God, who rules over all of his world. All of our questions are met in Jesus. No one ever spoke like him and no one ever will again. Which means if you're here this morning with, with honest questions, the first place to go for answers is, is Jesus in his own word. One of the questions that I'm often asked uh, throughout my ministry is, hey, Sean, I've got a friend who's an unbeliever, is wrestling with Christianity. Is there a good book that you can recommend uh, that might help me witness to him? And there's lots of good books, and there's lots of things that I can recommend. But friends, really, the, the main thing that you need to do if you have someone in your life who's asking good, honest questions about Jesus is take them to the Bible to say, hey, let me sit down with you. Let's read the Gospel of John together, or let's read the Gospel of Mark together, and let's listen to Jesus. Why? Why does that make sense? Why read Jesus instead of Tim Keller? I love Tim. But why read Jesus instead of Tim Keller? Because Jesus' words are words of life. Jesus' words are the words that actually answer the deepest questions of our hearts. And so we come this morning with all of our questions and with all of our doubts 
to Jesus. And what we find is in Jesus, we have the answer to the deepest needs of our souls. No one speaks like Jesus. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do bless you for your wonderful words of life. Lord, please, we ask that you would grant us grace to bring our questions and our fears and our doubts and our anxieties to you, uh, to listen to what your word says, to be greedy misers when it comes to the treasure of, of the Gospels of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Lord, we, there's many things we can read and many places we can go in the Bible, but Lord, may we, may we have uh, like a magnet, may we be drawn to the words of Jesus, because Jesus, your word is life. Uh, they are spirit and they are life. Lord, please do your work in our hearts and lives this morning so that we might know beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond to God's word by taking our hymn.